So we're, uh, <clears throat> it's All Saints Day, it's also uh, the beginning of the series on uh, hymns of faith. We're going to do another, uh, several hymns as we go through this. And uh, if, if you didn't notice, I'm just going to point out though that one of the things is this, this is one of uh, Hanford Ferguson's Bibles up here on the altar. I think it says that in the bulletin, but you might not see it, but just kind of want to lift that up to you. I asked Hillary at the last service, I said, how many did he have? And she said, a lot. <laughs> so I just encourage you, you know, if you, if you only have one, you probably need to get another one so you can read things in different translations uh, and get a fuller picture. Uh, sometimes that helps me at least uh, to understand what's going on in Scripture. Uh, we're going to start with a, a, a hymn that's uh, probably very familiar to most of you, this holy, 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 that most of us have sung forever and ever. And when I was a kid growing up in First Church Corpus, they, we sang this a lot. And at some point we had a, like an exchange where we had a pastor from New Zealand who came and was with us for uh, I think six or nine months, something like that. And, um, and he came and he announced this hymn, and, and he had kind of a New Zealand Baptist thing going on, right? So we're, we're in church, and he gets up, and he says, and we're going to sing our hymn, Holy, right? You get the little thing, you know, that? Holy, Holy, Holy. And I remember sitting there going, what? <laughs> you know, we don't talk like that in South Texas, you know, and, and all. But, you know, sometimes we, these hymns become so familiar that we, we stop listening to what they say. And, and it's not until we get them reframed a little bit that we actually hear what's in the hymn. Uh, so I'm hoping to do that this morning with you a little bit and have, kind of open your ears to hear uh, what Reginald Heber actually uh, intended uh, in this hymn and what he shares with us in this hymn. Let's pray. And Father, send your Holy Spirit to be in the midst of us and sing your songs into our hearts. Uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this hymn, as I said, it was written by a guy named Reginald Heber. Uh, he was an uh, Anglican priest, uh, started uh, uh, serving at parish in the late eight, 1700s, and then served into uh, the early 1800s in his career. So he began serving at a little place called uh, St. Luke's at Hodnet. Like that, you know those British, they have a way with names, right? Hodnet. Anyway, uh, and this is actually, this is the church. This is the actual building he served in uh, back then. And uh, this was his, where he started off. And one of the things when he was starting was uh, he, he kind of felt like they were singing a lot of hymns that were kind of old and stodgy. Does that sound familiar? I mean, you know. And so he decided he was going to write some new ones, that, you know, and, and get a friend of his to help so they'd have new words and a little catchier tune to them, you know I mean? I, you know, we like to think that we're, we're, we're kind of on the cutting edge of that stuff. And you really, you just need to hear, we've been doing this, you know, for a long time. Uh, some of you may or may not know, but the, the pipe organ uh, originally was a, an instrument for the street circuses and carnivals. And when they begin to bring those into the churches and uh, the Bishop of Lyon, France, uh, wrote to all the priests and, and forbade them to use the pipe organ in the service because he said, I am not going to have holy worship become a carnival act. So, you know, think about that every time they play the organ and you're thinking, you know, uh, I mean, one time the organ was controversial. So we've been doing this a long time. So, so original, he starts writing these hymns and uh, he also writes a lot of poetry. Uh, he was a very prolific writer and uh, none of the poetry ever gets published publicly. Uh, there's a collection of it that his family has maintained, but uh, none of that ever went into print. It was just some of his hymns that went into print. And, and after he'd been here for a number of years, he had a great opportunity and, uh, to go to India and was offered to be the bishop of Calcutta. 
And so they, they, they packed up and they went to India. Now, you know, remember, this is around the turn of the 1800s, somewhere in that period of time. Uh, and, and, you know, England is, is damp and cool. Uh, India is damp and it's not cool. Uh, and there's no AC or anything like that. So uh, the heat was, was really difficult for him. Plus, he was, he was just a, a real driven uh, worker. I mean, he, he preached just constantly and he worked constantly. Uh, he actually wrote a Hindustani to English dictionary uh, and uh, began translating the Bible into Hindustani. Uh, and then also for the, the folks down in southern India, he began translating into the Tamil language. Uh, and so he was, you know, I mean, he really was just working night and day and pushing himself. And he was constantly out during the day in the midst of crowds in this heat that he wasn't used to. And the, and the effect of that was that he ever so often would, you know, become quite ill with something or another, that he would pick up one of the tropical kinds of things or, or just from heat exhaustion. Uh, nonetheless, he pushed himself and pushed himself and pushed himself and pushed himself. Uh, finally, the, the, the last Easter of his life, he celebrated a great Easter mass at a church, and then, and then the next day went back to that church and did the confirmation service for all the confirmands in that church. And then the next day, he went to this church uh, in a town, and I think I'm saying it right, called Trichinopoly. I'll get it. Uh, and this is a, a drawing of the church. He went here and he preached several services here. So he had preached, you know, large services three days a row in the heat. Uh, and then spent time with people and everything. And when he got done preaching here that morning, after doing three services in a row at this church, uh, he went back to his quarters and uh, drew a nice cold bath to cool down. And he got in it and uh, had a stroke and died. Uh, he was 43 years old. So his, uh, his widow uh, gathered some of his hymns up that he had written. And she had them published in Britain in a collection of hymns. Uh, they were very, very, very well received. Uh, this, this particular hymn, Holy, 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 became like the most popular hymn in England of its time. Uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson once uh, wrote and said, this is the greatest hymn that's ever been written. Uh, some of y'all would argue with that, but that's, that's beside the point. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, it, was, it was hugely popular uh, in that time. And so uh, it was sung widely and, and broadly. And, and Hebner... Hebner Heber originally wrote that for the purpose of use on Trinity Sunday, uh, which is a celebration of the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But he drew on two passages, one in Isaiah and one in Revelation. So I'm going to start with the Isaiah passage this morning. Uh, this is Isaiah 6. It's the call of Isaiah. We sometimes use this as the model for the way to put worship together. Uh, but I want you to look for other things this morning a little bit and listen. Uh, in the year, he, uh, first off, Isaiah is, has gone to the temple with his offerings. Uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in Hebrew language, when this was originally uh, put down, uh, 
to emphasize something, they repeat the words. They don't have like exclamation points. Uh, they just repeat the words. So if you say, you know, holy, that's an important, but if you say holy, holy, that's kind of like putting an exclamation point there. And if you say holy, 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 that's like putting double exclamation points on it. And plus it's a three, which is the first number of completeness or unity. Uh, so, so you need to hear that, that in saying that, they're, they're emphasizing the holiness of God. Uh, that this is, an, is, is the, one of the defining attributes of who God is and something of great importance. The pivots of the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. When I kind of took this passage and began working with it and, and kind of playing with it, uh, you know, one of the things I've, I've noticed, wanted to look up was, you know, how often does that word holy appear? And actually, if you look in, there's 402 occurrences of it in the Old Testament, and there's 167 occurrences of that word in the New Testament. Now, one of the challenges somebody raises, well, is, is that really all the same word? And so I did a little more research, and uh, it's actually one word in, in Hebrew and one word in Greek. Uh, this is not the Hebrew spelling, obviously, uh, but Kadesh is, is the Hebrew word, and Hagios is, is the Greek word. Uh, and, and indeed, all of those instances are, are those words. Uh, so it's the same meaning, uh, which is uh, set apart, uh, sacred, or worthy of veneration. Uh, and this is the, the attribute that is described to God as being, you know, complete, uh, complete in, in all of this. Uh, so as they, they call out, holy, holy, holy. So Isaiah comes in the temple and he encounters this, you know, overwhelming a vision of the presence of God. In, in theology, we talk about transcendence and we talk about eminence. You know, transcendent being the other, that which is beyond uh, who we are and what we are, uh, and eminence meaning with us, uh, being present with us. And, and his first vision of God is this transcendent God, you know, the you know, perfect, you know, holy, 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 perfect in all ways, and you know, the smoke is filling the place and the whole building is shaking. Uh, and, and Isaiah is just overwhelmed. And I think it's interesting in that passage that it's not until Isaiah has that experience of the presence of God that Isaiah says, then, then I heard him speak. Uh, something about encountering this reality of God opens him up to hear the voice of God in a way he's not heard it before. Sometimes in the church, you know, we, we kind of play with this, you know, is, is God more... People will emphasize, is God more transcendent or is God more imminent and which is more important and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and I just want to put out, you know, if you, if you don't understand this, this idea of God as being imminent, set apart, you know, perfect in love and in power and in goodness, uh, you know, then what we tend to do is to just focus on the God that we understand and we end up kind of remaking God in our own image. You know, if, if we don't have this picture of who God can be, we really don't have any conception of what that might be. And so we, we imagine God to be kind of like us, but, you know, on a bigger scale. 
And, and let me just ask you a question. You know, I mean, if you think about that and you think about, well, the whole world is great, is you know, put together by a God that's kind of like us, you know, except on a bigger scale. I mean, you, you know, how's that going for you? I mean, you know, if, if we're in charge, you know, how good a job are we doing with things? Um, if you pick up the newspaper or, or you look at your feed on your computer or on your phone and you look at the news stories, I mean, people are starving in one place in the world while people in another place are worried about being obese. Uh, we still have people dying of preventable illnesses by the thousands every day. We still have wars. We still have people butchering people. We have people stealing and committing fraud. I mean, how, how, how well are we doing with all that? I mean, it's interesting to me that Isaiah doesn't come into the temple and, with the idea that, oh, I got to go out there and fix the world. He comes into the temple, and it's when he sees this image of the transcendent God, when he sees what perfection can look like, then he says, here I am, send me. But before he says that, coming into the presence of the transcendent God, he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now remember, when Jesus in the New Testament is talking about all this stuff, he says it's, it's not so much what defiles you, what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but what comes out. Because the stuff that comes out of our mouths reflects the condition of our heart. So when Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a people in the midst of a people of unclean lips, he, he's talking about the condition of who they are, the condition of their heart, that these are, these are people that are not perfect. They're far from it. They're imperfect, and they're broken. Because, you know, when you stand in the presence of, the perf- of somebody who's perfect, you become aware of how imperfect you are. You know, I, I, I pick guitar a little bit and, and play around with it, but, you know, if, if I go and I listen to somebody who's really good at it, what it makes me immediately aware of is how I'm really not good at it, you know, by comparison. And so Isaiah, all of a sudden, he's in the middle of the, he's in the presence of this transcendent God, and, and he realizes his brokenness and his imperfection, and he says, woe is me. Man, I'm done for, because I know how broken I am. And how broken the people around me are. And the interesting thing is that God's response to that, God's response to that is to send one of his attendants to touch his lips. And his guilt is gone and his sin is blotted out. You know, people sometimes talk about God in the Old Testament and say, well, you know, this is the God. He's got a power and he's got a judgment and all that. But the God in the New Testament, you know, he's the nice God. We like that God. But, you know, the God, he's kind of rough and everything. Except, you know, here, here's the deal. You know, here's, here's the God of the Old Testament pouring out grace and forgiveness. And that's imminent. He comes into the presence of the transcendent God. And then this transcendent God is so imminent that he comes down to where Isaiah is and pours out grace and forgiveness on him. He pulls those two together. And that really is what makes God holy. Because, you know, if God's off and he's always off here transcendent and he's completely different from us, but we don't have any way to connect with him, it doesn't allow us to become any more than who we are. And it doesn't give us hope. And if we reduce God to being just like us, it doesn't change who we are or give us hope. 
the holiness of God is, is the ability of God to take these two seemingly kind of irreconcilable things and, and bring them together. As this God who is perfect in love and, and in power and in goodness, yet who reaches down into our imperfection and lifts us up. It's interesting, in, in this passage, God starts with the transcendent and then reveals the imminent. As you come into the New Testament, you have the disciples uh, talking about Jesus and saying, we've come to believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. They experienced the imminent and then went to the transcendent. But nonetheless, it was that, that connection that held them together. The grace of God that reached down and lifted them up, met them where they were at, and lifted them up. Peter, uh, in his first letter, he writes to the uh, disciples uh, and says, Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And the only problem with that is that we can't do it. But that's the message of the gospel, is that what we're unable to do, God meets us and does with us, right? God proves his love for us and that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. He's now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. I mean, the God who, who has all this perfection and goodness and power and love reaches down to where we are in all of our brokenness and lifts us up. And that's why God is holy. That's what makes him holy, this outpouring of love. And so uh, uh, John, at the end of the whole Bible, has this amazing vision of the end of days, the end of the ages, when God comes to recreate everything as God intended it to be. And, and if you read through Revelation in 21, you read, you know, the holy city comes down from heaven to earth. God, God comes to be with his people, and God dwells in the midst of his people, and God sees his people face to face, and they're before him. And a little earlier in, in, in Revelation, uh, in the fourth chapter, there's a, a vision of, of, of what's going on in the heaven, where uh, all the saints are gathered around the throne of the Lamb, and the attendants are around the front of the Lamb, and they're singing praise to Him. And the attendants are, are singing day and night without ceasing. They sing, holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, uh, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, the 24 elders fall before the one who's seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne singing, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. When we sing this hymn later, listen to hear how much of this language he brings across into the hymn. And there's this act of, tremendous act of praise in the heavens. You know, when I was young, uh, we were having a conversation one time, and somebody was saying, well, you know, if, if we go to heaven and we're just going to kind of, you know, sit around and, you know, pluck harps and, and sing all day long, isn't that going to get boring? And at the time, you know, being a kid, I thought, yeah, it really is. I mean, you know, it's going to get kind of boring after a while, you know. Uh, and then, you know, you get a little older and you start to think, golly, no, no, wait a minute. If I get to go and sit and be in the presence of God, if I get to see God face to face 
I mean, if I am lifted up into this presence where everything is as God intended, and I'm there with all of my, all of my saints, all of my brothers and sisters and friends and family, is that really ever going to get boring? I don't think it's going to be glorious. And that's what Heber tries to capture in this hymn. This great act of praise where we recognize the the holiness of God who is both transcendent and and imminent, who is perfect and lifts us up into his own perfection and who comes to be with us in the end. And we see him face to face. And in the very presence of God, we get to spend eternity just lifting up our voices and praising. I don't think that's ever going to get boring. I think it's going to be a marvelous time to sing holy, holy, holy. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come and we do praise you. For you are the one who is holy, 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 who is perfect in love and in power and in goodness. And you are the one whose love and compassion is so powerful that you look upon our imperfectness and our brokenness and you reach out to us. Our guilt is taken away. Our sin is blotted out. You lift us up. You come into the place where we join together with you and you allow us to see you face to face. Our voices are lifted up in praise to sing to you not just for a day, but for all eternity, together with all of our brothers and sisters. And so, Father, we we give you thanks that this morning at this table when we gather, you gather us with all of the saints, and we get to come into into your presence singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.